the first half of the book of Daniel, I've called it ancient history. The first six chapters are basically events from the Babylonian and later the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, an octogenarian Daniel lived uh, through both of those, uh, served under both of those empires in his time, carried off into Babylon as a fugitive uh, from Judah, not a fugitive, as a, as a refugee, an exile from Judah, resettled in Babylon, selected uh, providentially to serve in the king's palace and served in that kind of royal atmosphere, that bureaucratic capacity for, for the better part of, of six, maybe part of seven decades The stories are fascinating. They are slices of life, episodes when, when loyalty to the true God uh, put him in good standing. The, the testimony of the first half of Daniel is that, um, that God stands beside those who stand for him. Well, now we come to chapter 7. There's a couple of issues related to where to divide the book of Daniel. Some people say, well, you divide it right here between chapters 1 through 6 and then chapters 7 through 12. The reason they say that is because 1 through 6, that, those are historical events. Those are looking back. Uh, beginning in chapter 7, the rest of the book of Daniel, those are what I've called future history. It's looking forward. They are visions of, uh, of the future that God gives to Daniel. Now, the only thing that complicates that, and this is, I don't know how important this is, but, um, but just so that you understand, uh, some people divide the book between chapter 7 and chapters eight, chapter 8. And the reason they do that is because from chapter 2 to chapter 7, uh, essentially the book is written not in Hebrew, but in Aramaic. Chapter 7 is the last chapter that is written primarily in Aramaic. And so when you have chapters 2 through 7, um, the, the language difference alone seems to suggest that that is a unit that was meant to be together. You say, okay, well, so how do we end all of this historical part with the vision that we're going to see in chapter 7? But what's interesting about the vision that we're going to look at tonight is it is given to Daniel, but the message of the vision in general terms is essentially identical with the dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. So as a unit, you have this story in chapter 2. You'll recall the dream uh, that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. He, had, he was deeply disturbed because he didn't understand it, but there was a, a massive statue and the head of the statue was gold, and then it, it, it went down into silver, and then, uh, you know, eventually you get down to, to feet of clay. And, and Daniel was the only one who could interpret it. And the interpretation was, this is uh, the unfolding of human history. There's the Babylonian Empire that will become uh, the divided empire that we know as the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire will eventually be replaced by uh, the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, 
which then in turn will be replaced by, um, by the Roman Empire. And in chapter 2, there, that dream finishes with the destruction of that statue and the replacement of all those earthly kingdoms by a divine kingdom. Okay, now we get to chapter 7, and this is uh, not a dream given to the king. This is a dream given to Daniel. Now, Daniel probably had uh, some inclination about how to understand this dream because it's different imagery, but it unfolds in a way that was very similar to that dream from all those years before that he interpreted for King Nebuchadnezzar. Nevertheless, Daniel finds himself a little confused, and so he draws on uh, some supernatural information, and, and it's a, it, le- it kind of wraps up that segment of the book and really becomes a transition to complete everything that we've seen and kick us off into this uh, series of visions that we'll, that, we'll, that we'll talk about. Now, the timing of this is everything that we've seen so far, the first six chapters, has been chronological. There was the young Daniel who was drafted into the king's service. He refused the king's menu and asked for uh, more basic nutrition. Uh, it It was a statement of loyalty to his God because the king's food had been Uh, offered before idols. It really wasn't about nutrition. It was about loyalty to God, as every other story in the first half of Daniel is. The king's dream is in chapter two. We saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, we've walked through, and and they're in chronological order. Until we get to chapter six, what we saw last week, Daniel in the lion's den, probably 83, maybe 84 years of age. Now, when we come to this chapter, the last part of the book is not chronological, at least not based on everything that we've seen before. In fact, chapter 7, he's going to tell us that this occurred in the first year of King Belshazzar. Remember, Belshazzar was the one who was throwing a party for his coronation while the enemy, the Medes and the Persians, were camped outside the city walls. And the very night that he threw a drunken orgy to celebrate his ascendancy to the throne, the Medes and the Persians tunneled under the walls and Babylon as an empire fell and disappeared into the pages of history. Um, In the first year of that reign, we're going to have, and you remember, um, this coronation was not the beginning. Belshazzar had been ruler over this segment of the Babylonian Empire as a co-regent with his father, Nabonidus. Okay, you remember that? So now, Nabonidus has been defeated in battle. He's fled the city. And so, uh, Belshazzar, Belshazzar uh, asserts himself as the only king. And that's the night that Babylon fell. But it was in the first year that he was on the throne as a, as a joint regent with his father that Daniel has a dream, similar to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but a dream just for Daniel. And we're going to see, um, you can imagine, if you, if you were a bureaucrat, I mean, essentially, Daniel is a professional administrator in a royal administration, 
he lives every single day probably dealing with reams of minutiae making this decision and, and supervising that action and overseeing this and, and being in charge of these people. And, and he's, he's, the temptation in that kind of role is to be caught up in, in the tedious detail of every single day. And then one night, he's given a dream. And it's a dream that shook him because in his capacity... Now, he was a faithful follower of the true God, but in his work capacity, he was always about keeping everything moving, oiling the machinery, keeping things working. And God broke into his world in a night vision and gave him a sweeping bird's eye view, 30,000 foot view of all the rest of human history. Now, when you're, when you're just trying to dot all the, the I's and cross all the T's, and God says, look up, and you see the panorama of all human history before you, it's going to shake you up a little bit. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Daniel chapter 7. Um, I'm going to just walk through this really just kind of in the order that it's given to us. I gave you an outline and, uh, and I've given you some, some headings that you can use if you want to try and organize my random thoughts. Um, but really, I want to just walk through this um, with kind of a, a running explanation, if that's all right. Daniel chapter 7, I, I've called this first section, The Vision of History Revealed. Chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, okay, and this phrase, in the first year of Belshazzar, I mentioned that. Um, let, me just, let me just tell you exactly when that was. The first year of Belshazzar, we know this because there are so many things in the book of Daniel that we can connect to historical events that we have actual dates for. So this would have been in 553 B.C. Uh, Daniel was 67 years old at the time of this dream. And Nebuchadnezzar had been dead for about nine years. All right? Um, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and told the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, but had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground, and set up on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth, between its teeth, and they said this to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. 
And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the previous horns were plucked out before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like human eyes, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Now, you probably don't need any explanation of any of that. All right, well, maybe, let's see what we can figure out. The message that we're going to find here is essentially the same as the message that God granted to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. But there's some differences. Primarily, the main difference is, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there was one mighty statue, and it was composed of decreasing valued materials. But I think, what, I think that the difference, one of the differences between these two visions is in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he's looking at the scope of human history as a single unified story, one statue that, that, that is made from different materials that represent the flow of one kingdom into another, each with... Um, decreasing quality, but, but stronger power. In this story that's given to Daniel, we have the same idea of a succession of human kingdoms. I'm going to tell you why we know it's human kingdoms. But it's not one single structure that sort of merges one into another. It's four distinct beasts Part of the difference here, I'm convinced, is Nebuchadnezzar's perspective uh, from his dream was the flow of human history from a human perspective, that everything sort of merges seamlessly into the next part. Whereas Daniel is granted the same history lesson, but I think from a divine perspective, because there's a diversity here, each of these kingdoms are separate individual, and they have different qualities about them. Now, let me set the stage for why we know these are human kingdoms. He starts by saying in this dream, I, I had a vision of four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. Throughout the Old Testament, and especially in, in, in the ancient world, oftentimes the sea was a symbol or a representation of humanity. Uh, sometimes calm, sometimes uh, churned up and, and, and dangerous. Uh, in this example, uh, the sea as a symbol of humanity on the earth, it is unstable. Not because of anything in itself, it is being stirred up by the four winds of heaven. Now that phrase is interesting, but it, it, it means basically the east wind, the west wind, the north wind, and the south wind. Uh, and we know from experience that the wind generally blows in one direction. The imagery behind the language of this verse is the idea that the wind was coming from all four directions at the same time so that the sea was being churned up constantly. So we have a picture of humanity with a sort of divine disturbance making things um, 
making things dangerous, if you will. Now, coming out of the sea, he's going to see four great beasts, um, different, he says, verse 3, different from one another. The first beast was like a lion, but had the wings of an eagle. Now, that's actually pretty fascinating, because one of the one of the areas of biblical criticism by those who don't believe in the divine inspiration and authorship of Scripture, one of the classic examples that they use to undermine the authority of Scripture is the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel has so much prophecy that is so detailed that people who don't believe in divine inspiration often point to Daniel as proof that the book of Daniel couldn't possibly have been written by anybody in the time of Daniel. It had to be written by, by somebody much later. In fact, uh, I've seen estimates for the book of Daniel that go all the way into the intertestamental period, which, which would make it the, the last book of the Old Testament. And the argument is he has too much specifics about things he couldn't possibly know about. Well, one of the examples of that is, is right here where he talks about how the first beast was, looked like a lion with the wings of an eagle. Now, here's what's fascinating about that. Archaeological evidence that we have discovered in the last 30 years show us that the symbol of Nebuchadnezzar's reign was a lion with eagle's wings. There is no way without access to that kind of archaeological discovery that somebody five or six hundred years later would be able to write the story of Babylon and be so eerily precise about the, the imagery. Anybody hearing Daniel's dream, now the dream is going to require some explanation and he's going to ask uh, a heavenly messenger to help him out. We'll get to that. But anybody that hears his dream from his time would have immediately understood right up front that the first kingdom he's talking about is the kingdom of Babylon because it's a lion with eagle's wings. I mean, it couldn't be more obvious. It also is proof of the divine inspiration of Scripture because it was written well before any of the historical facts that he tells us about. Now, this image of a lion with eagle's wings, it corresponds to the, um, uh, to the gold part of Nebuchadnezzar's statue in chapter 2. And, and it speaks about Babylon. The reason this was such a powerful image for Babylon is because the lion was, was recognized, even in the ancient world, as the king of beasts, and the eagle was recognized as the king of the birds, and gold was recognized as the most precious of all gems. In other words, the kingdom of the most quality was Babylon. Now, why? Okay, let's look at these verses. We've got this lion that had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and set on two feet like a man. 
a human mind also was given to it. Okay, here's the imagery. He says, I'm looking at a symbol of Babylon, and I kept watching it until I realized that the wings had been plucked. Now, the reason you have a lion with eagle's wings, the, the, the storyline behind the image was Nebuchadnezzar's reign, really, truly one of the greatest reigns of the ancient world. Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Babylon was seen as a devouring lion, the king of the beasts. But he wasn't just a devouring lion. He was a lion with eagle's wings, which meant that no place on earth was safe from this lion. He had a range beyond what an animal could walk. This lion could fly. Now, Daniel's watching this very familiar symbol, and all of a sudden he sees the eagle's wings, boop, boop, plucked off the lion. Okay, what does that mean? We still have a ferocious lion, but now he has less range. He has less ability to cover the earth. And then he says something interesting. He says, and then the lion was set up on two feet and took on the form of a man and was given a human mind. What is that? That is Nebuchadnezzar, a king out of his own pridefulness that lost his mind and went insane. And for seven years was the definition of a beast, even in the way he thought, until he looked up and God restored his mind, replaced him on the throne, and gave him glory for the remainder of his reign. You see, we talked about that when it happened because Nebuchadnezzar, in that moment, truly acknowledged the God of Daniel. He quits talking about Daniel's God in pagan terms, and he begins to speak about Daniel's God in the kind of language that Daniel would have used, as if he now understands who this God is. What this verse in Daniel, Daniel would have recognized at least this first part because here's a symbol for Babylon. It was the, the wings were plucked. So here we have uh, a, a king who can no longer administer his, king, his, his empire across the globe. And he's, he's, he's really helpless until God sets him back on his feet and gives him a human mind. This lion, this roaring predator is humanized. That's what happened when Nebuchadnezzar went from a pagan king to a worshiper of the true God. He actually went from being animal-like to being a man that God intended for him to be. It's a brilliant introduction to this, to this dream. Now, Daniel is in the middle of this vision, and he says, verse 5, and behold... Another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And they said this to it, Arise, devour much meat. All right? The lion was known for his lordliness. That is, Nebuchadnezzar was probably the greatest king of the ancient world. Bear, the bear is known for its strength and its fierceness. The bear corresponds to the silver 
of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 and represents the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, it, it, in, in Daniel's dream, he describes a bear. And if you can, I don't want to get down on, my, on all four and, and do this, but if you can picture a bear with two feet down and two feet in, in, in motion, one side is down and the other side is, is, is taking the next step. It's the image of a bear in motion, a bear walking, if you will. It's, it's related to the fact that we have in the Medo-Persian Empire two kingdoms that created an alliance in order to be able to defeat Babylon, and they're represented as the two halves of this beast that looks like a bear. Now, the bear is known for its fierceness, for its strength. It says there were three ribs in its mouth, and they was instructed to eat even more meat. Well, the Medo-Persian Empire is the empire uh, that is right around the corner. I mean, this dream comes in Belshazzar's first year. Belshazzar is the last king of Babylon. The Medo-Persian Empire is soon to, be, to, to take over. Looking back historically, there were three great empires of the ancient world that the Medo-Persians destroyed. There was the Babylonian Empire, there was the Lydian Empire, and there was the Egyptian Empire. Three ribs, three, three other beasts that were devoured by this beast, the bear. All right, lordliness in the lion strength and fierceness in the bear. But then there's verse 6. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. All right? We had a lion. That represents the gold of the statue. We had a bear. That represents the silver of the statue. Now we have a leopard representing the iron part of the statue that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar has in chapter 2 in his dream. Leopards are much quicker, actually smarter. The leopard, as opposed to the, to the lordliness of the lion or the strength and the fierceness of the bear, a leopard in the ancient world represented agility and intelligence. Now, what's fascinating about this is we know historically the next empire in this historical transition, was the empire of Greece under Alexander the Great. Described as a leopard with not two wings, but four wings. In other words, what we have is a big cat, not quite as massively strong as a lion, but quicker. And now, with the agility and the speed of not two wings, but four wings. What do we know about Alexander the Great? The phalanx that he invented as a strategy for battle made the Greek army virtually undefeatable in their time. They were quick, they were agile. He marched them off the known map of his generation. They conquered everybody. And you think they didn't do it quickly enough? Alexander the Great was 33 years old when he died. And he had already conquered in his generation 
the whole world. A leopard with four wings, agile, quick, intelligent. But then you have a fourth. And it's interesting because there's no animal to describe this one. Babylon is a lion. Medo-Persia is a bear. Greece is a leopard. But listen to this one. We know historically the next kingdom that comes along is Rome. But listen to this description. Verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, we'll talk about the horns in a minute, but what I want you to see right now is we're looking at the characteristics of each of these kingdoms by the symbols that are assigned to those kingdoms in this dream. Well, this fourth kingdom, the kingdom that will come to be called Rome, there's no animal suitable to represent this kingdom. He leaves it, he leaves it with us, the word monster is not here, but, but essentially that's what's being described. This is a monster that has no obvious animal comparison. In fact, he goes out of his way to say uh, dreadful, terrible, extremely strong, large iron teeth, devoured, crushed, trampled down everything, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. If Babylon was marked by lordliness, if Medo-Persian was marked by strength and fierceness, if Greece was marked by agility and intelligence, this monster of Rome was marked by nothing less than a rage for destruction. The imagery here, you can't translate it strong enough. He's describing an almost unthinkable being. Now, remember the sea represents, the ocean represents humanity. Each of these beasts come out of the, out of the sea. That's how we know that, that he's talking about human kingdoms. Now, in this terrible, in this awe-inspiring monster that he describes as the last beast, he says... It had ten horns. And while I was thinking about the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the previous horns were plucked out before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like human eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts. Now, just hold on to that, okay? Just, just take that. Let me just tell you this. In the ancient world, not just scripturally, but, but throughout the ancient world, horns were uh, images or symbols that were often used to describe kings with power. All right? So this is, um, this is an empire represented by this horrendous beast. But there are ten kingdoms 
that are associated with this beast. And he says, while I was contemplating these 10 horns, these kings, there was another horn that emerged. And as it showed itself, he realized that this horn had human eyes and a human mouth, meaning it could see, and it was able to utter incredible boasts. And this horn displaced or eliminated three of the ten horns. So we have ten horns. We have an eleventh that comes up. It destroys three, so we end up with eight. Okay? Let's leave it right there because we're going we're gonna to get to that in this chapter. All right? The vision of history revealed. Verse 9, the ancient of days observed. And notice every time, every time, it's like, it's like a series of slides. You remember the, the old slide shows, you know? Okay, this dream is coming to, da- to Daniel like a, a slideshow. And he keeps saying, and I kept watching, and here's the next picture. And I kept watching, and here's the next picture. Well, now, verse 9, I kept looking until the thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were serving him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court convened and the books were open. Then I kept looking because the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. All right, let me help you understand this. Here's what's happening. He's in the middle of a dream, okay? He's an observer. And the dream is happening on earth. Out of the ocean, representing humanity, are, is this sequence of empires represented by three animals and then a monster. And he says, I kept looking, but then I saw something else. Now, what you have to picture is this is all still happening, okay? We left this, this scene with a new horn that's displaced three other horns, a new king that has displaced three previous kings, and he is boastful. All right, we'll leave it at that because we'll get to, to what he's boasting about. But while this is happening, it's like Daniel is zeroed in watching this slideshow of events, and then it's like a new window opens up. And so this is happening, and he's aware of it, and he's watching it, but now he's given the ability to see something else that's happening simultaneously. And immediately he understands this is on earth, and this is somewhere else. And he says they were setting up thrones. They were setting up, in effect, a courtroom. And when the thrones were in place, he says the ancient of days took his seat. Now, I wish we could just camp here for a while and talk about that name for God, the Ancient of Days. 
when he describes this vision of the one who's seated on the throne, this particular name of God, the Ancient of Days, is, is really designed, uh, it comes out of the idea that, that we venerate age because we recognize that age often produces wisdom. In fact, when he describes the one who sits down on the throne, he says his garment was white as snow, symbolizing perfection, and the hair of his head like pure wool. He was white-haired. What is the image of that? He's an old man, but not an old, decrepit man, a man who sits on a throne with a regal nature to him, but he has the wisdom that comes from an eternity. He's the ancient of days, the one who precedes time itself. Can you imagine that? You ever really tried to ponder eternity? I mean, it'll drive you crazy. It will drive you crazy because we are bound by time and space and we have no way to even know how to think outside that, the ground rules that we've been assigned. And so we understand eternity as sort of endless time, but eternity is not endless time. Eternity is without time. It is existence that is always and forever in the moment. It's not progressing in, in the sense that, 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 that something is going to happen that, that, that hasn't happened. And you say, well, that doesn't make sense. Exactly. That's my point. We can't even process it. So to, to look at this one who takes his seat on the throne, to acknowledge that he looks old, but it's not, it's not a description of, of someone who's who's past his prime. It's the image of someone who is venerated because there is nobody who knows what he knows. He's the ancient of days. He's not time past. He's before time. He's outside of time. He's beyond time. The ancient of days. He says his throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. <sighs> All the way through the Old Testament, fire is associated with the presence of God. Its wheels were a burning fire. See, his throne is on wheels. Now, I don't expect you to remember this because, because I don't expect you to. But... but when I did a series uh, from the book of Ezekiel uh, a number of months ago, if you remember the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has this vision of this thing, and it's on wheels, and it rises, and it moves in any direction that it chooses, and the wheels turn, and, and he does his best to describe what essentially is an indescribable picture. But when we studied it, we came to the understanding what he's seeing is the throne of God that the Jews thought that they had left behind in Jerusalem. They'd been carried into exile and God, he was still the God of Judah. The temple had been destroyed. He was there and they were without hope. 
So what happens in Ezekiel chapter one? God puts his throne on wheels and shows up in Babylon to let his people know you are never outside my realm because the whole earth is my footstool. Well, here we have Daniel. Ezekiel is out in, uh, among the common folk. Daniel's in the palace, but they're, they're contemporaries. And here's this same image of the throne of God on wheels, meaning that he makes his presence known wherever he decides to be. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. And then get this. This all sounds like the book of Revelation, but you got to remember, Daniel never read the book of Revelation. Thousands upon thousands were serving him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. Thousands, we know that number. Myriads is an ancient word that means 10,000. It was the largest word used in the ancient world. I mean, the largest number used in the ancient world. So if you wanted to describe an uncountable number, you took the largest number, which was 10,000, a myriad, and you said myriads times myriads. And that was a way of saying that there were people uh, standing in the court of the Ancient of Days beyond counting. And then this is spooky. He says, the court convened and the books were opened. Okay, now remember what we have. We have the the historical flow of one kingdom after another happening on earth, coming out of humanity, these beasts representing new kingdoms distinct from all that's gone before them until we get to this monster, which is even more different from everything that's gone before it. But you have all the, crown, all the thrones being set up and the Ancient of Days takes his place and the court was convened. Now, why would a heavenly court be convened? there's about to be some judgment this is what's happening and he's watching it but he sees this understand how awesome this is we say well surely Daniel understood I mean why why is he going to be so upset he's upset because God just let him in on the whole span of human history it's a little overwhelming I mean, the only reason you're not more shaken is because you know a lot of this history because it's history for us. None of this had happened for Daniel. And he's watching this unfold and court convened. Verse 11, there's that phrase. Then I kept looking because the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but extension of life granted. Here's what, he, here's what he's saying. Now, this is going to get into even more detail. We're still summarizing. He's still telling the essence of the dream, but, but the complete interpretation is still coming. What could take your eyes off of this scene? I mean, really. Except something drew his attention away. And you know what it was? It was that little horn. We're going to find out what the little horn was saying. He was so full of pride and self-boasting, he speaks blasphemy. Daniel is seeing this, 
But the blasphemy of the final kingdom is so serious that it pulls his attention back. Well, what's going to happen? Well, let's keep looking. The Son of Man is presented. Verse 13, there's that phrase. I kept looking in the night visions. Uh, Oh, let me, I, I skipped verse 12. Let me just say this. He's going to talk about this last beast being destroyed, and he's utterly destroyed. His body's destroyed. He's given to a burning fire. Then it says the other beasts um, were taken away. That is, they lost their dominion, but they had an extension of life granted for an appointed period of time. Let me explain that real quickly. Um, Here's what that means. In each transition from Babylon to Medo-Persia, from Medo-Persia to Greece, from Greece to Rome. Each kingdom in succession lost their dominion. They were no longer the ruling empire. But Daniel's a perfect example. He transitioned, and certainly he wasn't the only one, he transitioned right from the Babylonian empire to service in the Medo-Persian empire. In other words, they lost their dominion, but each empire essentially was assimilated into the following empire. The Roman Empire is a perfect example. Uh, the, the language of administration in Rome was Latin, but the language in the streets among the common people was what? Greek. Because that had come from the empire that had preceded it. So what he's saying is each kingdom in turn lost their dominion, their control over the earth, but they were granted an extension of life in that they... Uh, they lost their power, but they, their people merged seamlessly into each successive empire. Until we get to Rome, Rome is going to be completely destroyed, burned in fire. There's nothing to transition to the next kingdom. Because the next kingdom we're going to see is going to be the kingdom of the Son of Man. And it is not just a transition or an extension of what has gone before. It is foundationally and fundamentally different. Okay? All right. Verse, verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion honor and a kingdom so that all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. All right. The Son of Man. That phrase in Daniel is describing a human. This would have been a mystery because a human approaches the throne of the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days, with the destruction of the last monstrous kingdom, grants a brand new kingdom to this Son of Man. He gives him dominion. He gives him authority. This is why in the New Testament that the Pharisees lost their flipping minds when Jesus referred to himself as what? The Son of Man. You know what he's doing? 
He said, well, he's identifying with, with, with broken humanity. He's, he's, he's exercising humility and identifying with us. Okay, to a degree. But you know what he's doing? He is saying, remember Daniel chapter 7? That's me. I stood before the throne whereupon the Ancient of Days was seated and he gave me what? A kingdom. What was, the, what was the temptation in the desert? Hey, bow down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. He didn't need Satan to get, grant him any kingdoms. He'd been given the kingdom of the whole earth. What did Jesus say on his way back to heaven? He said, all authority has been given to me. And so now I commission you to go out to the whole world, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to observe everything that I've told you. We talk about the Great Commission, but we forget that the preface of the Great Commission was all authority has been given to me. He sealed that authority with the completion of the work that was assigned to him on the cross. That's what is being described in Daniel chapter 7. The Ancient of Days establishes a new kingdom with a new king, with new dominion over all creation. This is so awesome. His dominion, unlike each of these successive kingdoms that we've been looking at, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. All right. Let me tell you one more thing about that. I can't possibly finish this chapter, so we're going to... So I'm going to find a place to, 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 to put, our, put our thumb in the page, and we'll come back to it. But before we leave this section about the Son of Man, I want to point out one other thing. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. It's interesting. If you want some Bible verses, I would give you Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1, and Psalm 104, verse 3. In the New Testament, Revelation 1, 7. What do all those verses have in common? You can look them up, but I'll tell you this. They all speak about this coming king arriving on the clouds. In fact, in ancient Hebrew, the, there were messianic designations. There were titles that they gave to this Messiah that they were expecting. And two of them are related to this. One of them was the son of a cloud, and the second one was the cloudy one. Uh, this is just another hint that we're talking about the one who would come and take away the sins of the world. Daniel is too good. All right, meaning of the symbols explained. I don't think I can get through all this, but let's, 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 get, it, let's get it started. Verse 15. Huh. As for me, this is a parenthesis, Daniel speaking. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Okay, don't be fooled just because you and I have a different perspective and we know how the history unfolds and we look at that and we go, wow, Daniel was really on to something. Daniel doesn't know any of that, right? This is, this is the first he's ever heard of, of any of this. 
He's, he, he remembers Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but this is his dream. And somehow interpreting somebody else's dream does not have quite the same impact as the dream that, that comes from God directly to you. And Daniel's like, I'm, I'm in over my head. I'm a little overwhelmed here. Verse 16, I approached one of those who were standing by. Now, this is, this is where I really love it. Here's the thing about Daniel's vision that makes it so cool. Daniel... He's seeing this flow of human history. He's seeing a courtroom in heaven where judgment on those kingdoms is being, is being issued forth. He sees a son of man arrive on clouds and be granted authority for a whole new kingdom. And then guess what? He gets to be a participant in the vision. He's not on the outside looking in anymore. He says, my mind was alarmed by everything. I, I think he understood some of it, but I think he didn't understand all of it. So he says, I approached one of those who were standing by. Well, who's standing by? Well, it could have been anybody. We know that there's thousands upon thousands serving the one on the throne, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. Uh, the bottom line is, he probably had an angel within arm's reach. And he nudges the guy, and he says, hey, I began requesting of him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Verse 17. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. Now, kings are associated with kingdoms or with empires. So we've used the term, the flow of empires. He, he puts it in terms of kings. But in the ancient world, the empire was embodied in the king. There are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and take possession of the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Now, a couple of interesting things about verse 18. Uh, a couple of times in this chapter, they're going to use the word saints. That, to me, I don't like that interpretation because that has a very New Testament feel to it. Saints is a typically a word that we get from Greek. They've used that word here, but the literal translation of the original, of the original Aramaic was holy ones. Now, holy ones, saints, there's not substantial difference there in the meanings, but holy ones just sounds a little more Old Testament to me, which I like. Um, he says the, the four kingdoms or empires that have arisen from the earth, they will be judged. But the saints, the holy ones of the highest one, will receive the kingdom and take possession of the kingdom forever for all ages to come. See, there is this son of man who is going to be granted an endless kingdom. And the holy ones of God, the saints, will participate in that kingdom forever. Verse 19. Then I decided... Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of the horns fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates." Um, okay, here's the thing. There's been four animals, but, but here's, while he doesn't know the historical details 
I mean, he doesn't understand all the details of the Medo-Persian empire that's going to replace Babylon. He certainly doesn't understand Greece as the third of those empires. But they're enough alike that they could be represented by animals. And whatever the details, as he's watching that, I think he can, he can sort of go with the flow. But this last one, I mean, it is, it is definitionally different. He doesn't even have an animal that he can assign to it because it's such a horrible thing. So he jumps right to that. What I really want to know about is this fourth beast. What's the story there? And so he just summarizes in these verses that I just read. Verse 21, I kept looking and that horn, remember that, that one horn that replaces three others out of the 10, that horn was waging war with the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Okay, let's look at our images. This is a king, but he's more powerful than the kings that have gone before him. He's boastful. He's blasphemous. And when Daniel turns his attention back to the horn, he's talked to the angel, he turns his attention back to the horn, and he realizes the horn is making war against the holy ones of God. And they were losing. Don't miss that. They were losing. Until. Until the Ancient of Days makes his appearance. One of the interesting things in the book of Revelation about the battle of Armageddon. There have been movies made about Armageddon. Armageddon is a word that has made it into our culture and it means sort of the great final battle of all things and the culture doesn't understand what Armageddon really is but, but it's come to be in our cultural mindset this global war but when you go to the book of Revelation, here's what you discover about the Battle of Armageddon. It is a huge dud because all of the armies of the earth assemble themselves and Jesus, merely by the word of his mouth, ends the battle. There's no conflagration. There's no global world war. There's Jesus and he speaks, and the armies are laid to waste. Well, that's what we have here. This king, an extraordinary king, a king different from the other kings, he specifically wages war against the holy ones, and he's carrying the day. But look what happens. It says, um... Oh, waging war with the saints and prevailing against them, verse 21, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Now that is an anticlimactic battle. I mean, the Ancient of Days shows up and the issue is settled. It's over. The losing side, the saints, the holy ones of God, instantly become the winning side. 
That's why I lose patience with believers who say, you know, I know we're supposed to win in the end, but it sure doesn't look like we're winning. You know, the devil is just playing right into God's plan. Doesn't look like we're winning. How many promises of God for victory do you have to have before you quit judging God by the headlines in the newspaper and begin to understand that it doesn't matter what it looks like. The Ancient of Days is going to show up. The Son of Man is going to come on a cloud. And it's going to be over before we even realize what happened. All right. That's verse 22. The Ancient of Days has come. The little horn and his blasphemy is defeated. And a new kingdom takes over. That's where we got to stop. I know, I know. Um, I have... I have worship people who need to practice because they're going to lead us to the throne of grace on Sunday morning, and, and I, I need to let them have this space. Um, we will pick up on verse 23 because there's more information about this little horn, and that's critical. And the reason why I don't want to rush through it is because when we talk about the little horn in Daniel 7, we've got to find our way to Thessalonians and 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 talk about this man of lawlessness that Paul talks about or the Antichrist that John talks about. That's the connection that we're going to make. So let's stop here and we'll come back on uh, uh, not, oh, oh, not next week, two weeks from tonight. Next week is spring break. We have no Wednesday evening activities. So this is the definition of a season cliffhanger, okay? Two weeks. We'll be back. Listen, just trust the fact that we win, okay? Hold on to that. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the thrill that comes from being in your word and all that you reveal and show to us through Daniel. Father, I pray that you'll give us confidence, that you'll make us strong and fearless, courageous in our generation, because we have the unshakable promises of the ancient of days that there is a kingdom coming that no other kingdom can stand up against. Father, bless the people who are called Evergreen, I pray in Jesus' name. Meet with us as we come back here together on Sunday. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.